Welcome to Shanghai Zan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll also be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts. You can learn more about Shanghai Zan at our website, zanstation.com. That's z h a n station.com. Coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai, I'm Bryce Whitwam, and I'm Ali Kazmi. Ali, in today's episode, we have China sports insider Mark Dreyer, formerly a reporter in Sky Sports in the UK and Fox Sports in the US. Mark has been based in China since the 2008 Olympics and has worked for a number of media outlets. He's a regular commentator as an analyst on the booming Chinese sports industry. Mark also writes weekly sports columns for SubChina and Sports Business, and is a co-host of his own show, China Sports Insider Podcast. We'll leave links in the show notes、uh, to his site. And just this week, Ali Mark has released his first book on the China sports industry, entitled "Sporting Superpower: An Insider's View on China's Quest to Be the Best." It's available on Amazon. And Ali should also point out that today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Campaign Asia, as we've reached the thirteen thousand download mark. Woohoo! That's unbelievable. Mark is not actually in Shanghai; he's in Beijing, so it's not really a Shanghai podcast. But we're talking to him from Beijing. We're definitely still in China, and this is the first time we're experimenting with doing running a podcast across different cities. Mark,、uh, how is the New Year treating you so far? Yeah, pretty good.、Um, yes, you're right.、Um, In Beijing, I was actually in Shanghai fairly recently doing my quarantine. So,、um, you know, if, if that counts, so <laughs> been in Shanghai before too,、uh, not too long ago. Oh, that definitely counts. Quarantine definitely counts. So, Mark, we we all share, share something in common. You arrived in Beijing in two thousand eight for the for the Beijing Olympics.、Uh, I believe Ali and I were also in in Beijing, or at least in Shanghai at that time. Ali, when were you in Beijing? So I've been in Beijing since ninety six, all the way through to two thousand and eight. But I moved down to Shanghai in May of two thousand and eight. So I wasn't there for the Olympics, but I definitely shared a lot of the fervor. So tell us about your experience for the Beijing Games. I actually came very end of two thousand seven. I think November two thousand seven. So kind of nine months before, how ten months, I guess,、uh, before the the build up. I'd actually been working in the in the states. I'd, I'd previously been in London, and I met my now wife, and she was living in New York. So we were kind of long distance for a bit, then moved over to the states. We were there for a couple of years, got married, and then she was setting up a business that was partly based in in China, partly based in the U.S. And the Olympics were coming up, which was. Big on my radar because I'd had a background in in sports TV, and so we just thought, hey, let's move for a year. You know, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> you know, we can always leave.、Uh, and then, so we saw it kind of through the Olympics, and、uh, what are we now? Sort of fourteen years on, and、uh, there's no, another Olympics around the corner. So <laughs> kind of crazy, but、uh, yeah, still here. And how long have you been covering sports? I mean, I guess ever since well, even before leaving university, I graduated.、Uh, it's going to date me here, but two、uh, thousand and kind of、uh, moved to Sky Sports in the UK fairly quickly after that. So I was working on a on a soccer show for about five years, and then was with the what was then the Fox Soccer Channel in the US. That was fun, and do it、uh, some other things with、uh, AP Television as well. 
yeah, I was doing that. But I spent most of my time at, at university actually, on the local radio station, uh, also doing sports shows and, and other stuff there. So kind of ever since I can remember, I suppose. So uh, what keeps you in China? You've obviously been here quite a while and now coming up to a, a second Olympics. So uh, what keeps you in China all this time? Yeah, just just I mean, I've kind of worked in, in various um media and sport related jobs with the new Olympics coming up, the second Olympics here, the opportunity to, to put out a book, which is basically my, it's my arc in China, you know, from one Olympics to the next. So it's a bunch of sort of tales that I've, that I've come across and I've heard and interviews and, you know, some of my humble analysis too. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was fun to do. And I think um, there's so much, there's so much to discuss. You can pick any sport pretty much and, and doing a, a whole book on it. So I've tried to uh, pick little bits from, from across the spectrum. Do you feel that you're more connected to China? Do you feel that there's an emotional bond with the characters and the names and the people and the teams? Do you feel that you're supporting them to win and be successful? You kind of fall in love with the country a bit more every time you write about them, the success, sure. the fans, the celebrations, the results. It's a great question. It really is. Um, and, and, you know, where to start? I think I would love to see, let's just, you know, we were talking about soccer beforehand. I would love to see China have a, a, a solid, a decent soccer team. I'd love to see them win the World Cup. I'd love to see them, like, qualify for the World Cup. I think it would be it would be great for the Chinese people. There's, there's millions and millions of passionate soccer fans here. Uh, it would be great for world football, you know, to have a, a competitive China team. It hasn't happened for various reasons. And, and as someone who's followed it, that's frustrating because there's some pretty obvious missteps that have been taken. Um, and, and like you, you hate to see it because, you know, there's a kind of a pathway to success, which is generally agreed upon, you know, without getting into the details and when other priorities, whether it's uh, political or, or, or economic priorities, sometimes get in the way of the sports. Um, and I think that has been it's been one of the fascinations for me that more so in China than anywhere else, I think. You know, the, the fact that, that politics and business and sports are just basically inseparable. You know, you try to untangle them, but but you really, you really can't in so many ways, whether that's the Olympics, whether that's, um, you know, whether that's soccer, but pretty much every every sport as well. So, you know, yes, to, to, to go back to the questions, I, I do root for China. I'd love to see them do well. Um, you know, I, I've been covering their, their hockey teams pretty uh, closely in the, in the build up to the Olympics. And there's some really interesting stories there with some. Uh, what they've called heritage players. So uh, North Americans of Chinese descent who have kind of uh, been recruited to both the men's and the women's team. Um, and uh, just just the way that they are kind of integrated uh, has, has been interesting as well with sort of citizenship and passport issues too. Um, I do think though that from, from an outside observation of, of Chinese fans is that, you know, they do, there, there is still sort of like this separation of Chinese and other Right. So, so, for example, in the soccer team, they've naturalized a bunch of players. They've they've recruited some Brazilians. Some have uh, Chinese heritage. Um, some do not. This is perfectly standard in, in global football. Um, the majority of teams at the World Cup have at least one foreign born player uh, who, for various reasons, um, has has maybe grown up in, the, in a, another country, born and then moved in childhood or or. Or whatever. Sometimes, if you play for long enough, and it, there's a five-year rule, if you play for for an, um, in another country, then you're qualified under FIFA rules. This is not a controversial thing. But for China, and every time you see the reports, it's still like the naturalized footballers or the you know the 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 the, the foreigners who are playing for the national team. It's not just like the Chinese team and the Chinese players. Like they're never fully accepted as maybe some fans do accept them more than others. But I think there is still that kind of separation. 
Um, that in itself, I think, is a really interesting <laughs> kind of um, cultural element. Ch- China, of course, is not a, an ethnically multicultural place. Uh, and so I think that that's sort of an obvious reason for it. But um, China's not really all that good in team sports, are they? This is, it's a bit of a cliche to say it, but but there's certainly some truth in this. And, you know, China historically has done very well at the, um, in the individual sports, in the Olympic sports. Frankly, if you get 50,000 gymnasts and put them in a gymnastics factory, the best one uh, is going to win Olympic gold. <laughs> you know, that that's a, a tried and true formula that China has followed time and again, Olympic cycle after Olympic cycle. So, so these sports where it's, you know, it's gymnastics and it's uh, diving and so on, weightlifting, another one that, that China, there's, only, there's 75% of China's gold medals at the Olympics have come in just six sports. Um, and so they've really kind of hammered on, on these things that they're good at. Now, when it comes to the more team sports uh, where historically, and there are exceptions, women's volleyball, for example, they've, they've done That's well. That's true. Very but well. generally, football, women's football. Um, China has, yeah, they're, they're kind of on the downward slope. 20 years ago, they were, they were pretty good and they got to the World Cup final. Um, but they've they've regressed, uh, unfortunately, in, in more recent times. I think one of the big reasons is that the sporting system, the all-powerful sporting system, kind of reverts to what it knows is successful. Um, and that is the, again, a cliche, but there is some truth in it, the, the sort of the more military-type state-run sports you know, where it's like, you know, repetitive, uh, highly pressured, and, and, and a lot of training. Uh, that works in gymnastics and in diving. It doesn't work in soccer. If you, if you know what someone's going to do with the ball at their feet, it's very predictable. Uh, the answer is not in, in a lot of these sports to just train twice as hard as the other teams. You know, we know a lot more than we did about recovery and nutrition and all that sort of stuff. But when China loses, the, the fallback is always, well, they must not be trying hard enough. So we need to train them more. And, and, and I hear this so many times. I hear this from Chinese athletes. I hear this from foreign coaches who've been brought in. But, you know, the bosses, the leaders are still kind of in that older mindset. And that is one of the, the one of the reasons, I think, why some of the progress has been has been hindered in, in some sports. Hey, Mark, let's turn to the Winter Olympics since we're just around the corner. Are you, are you getting excited, excited about it? Are you excited about the Olympics? And more importantly, are you going to attend the events? I don't even know how you even get tickets or how that even works. Or you have to go into another bubble inside the bubble. That's what I heard. I wonder if you have a press card. Right. So, so it's, a, it's a little bit complicated, as you, uh, as you can imagine. And they still haven't announced if there will even be any public ticketing plans. So that's, that's one thing. Journalists can go in there, but imagine the, the bubble. It's, it's really a series of bubbles. They're calling it a closed loop management system. So there's three Olympic clusters. There's one in Yenching, which is kind of some mountains. Then there's Jiangjiakou or Chongli. That's another group of mountains. And then there's downtown Beijing. And there's sort of transport links between the three different areas. Now, there was a story out last week, which was pretty hilarious. Well, kind of funny and not. And they actually put out an announcement saying, if you're in a car crash with one of these Olympic vehicles, where it's transporting Olympic participants, whether they're athletes or coaches or someone, if you're in a car crash with with one of these shuttle buses, taking them from one part of the bubble to another, like don't interact with them. Stay in your vehicle, keep the windows up, because the big fear is these guys are all infected with covid and then it's going to infect you and then you're going to bring it back into the to, to the population and then it's basically is out. So, you know, COVID is by far the number one priority at all times. So you have this bubble, but imagine it's kind of like a separate little country on the outskirts of Beijing and part of the downtown Beijing as well, like carved out. 
Because if I go into the bubble for 20 minutes and then come out, I have to go into quarantine for three weeks. So it's basically like I've left the country and re-entered. So for a lot of the journalists who are based in Beijing, what's happening is they're actually going to stay outside of the bubble because they don't really want to go in for two and a half weeks of Olympics and then be in a hotel for three weeks. And their colleagues from overseas are flying straight into Beijing on these commercial charter flights. They'll go straight into the bubble and then they can leave straight away without any quarantine. They have a lot of testing, uh, both before they come and and daily testing as well. But that's basically how it it is going to work. So uh, I think the authorities are very nervous, very nervous indeed about, about Omicron being so infectious. But they've set up a system that I think is, is as good as they could possibly do. And at this point, it's just, you know, how well can they manage? Mark, how would you compare the vibe in Beijing towards the Winter Olympics uh, compared to the 2008 experience? Then you have the additional component of uh, COVID, and then you also mentioned the bubble. So when you sum it all up, it feels like it's going to be a bit more mute versus 2008. And obviously, the country's changed as well, right? And country and fanship and... And all that fervor has obviously changed as well. I mean, I, th- I think I think you've already hit it on the head there. Like my previous answer, all I was talking about was COVID and restrictions and bubbles. You know, that's any that's that's top of mind for everyone. Like I came here to cover the Olympics. I then went to the Vancouver Olympics and covered that one, and the London uh, Olympics in 2012. I, I I love the Olympics. It's so much fun to to cover. This is very very different. And uh, you know, am I am I looking forward to the Olympics? Well, yes, but. You know, it's just a very, very different vibe. Um, it's all about, from the organizer's point of view at this point, it's, you know, can we just get through it? <laughs> can we just get through it safely? I think the IOC uh, as well with with a lot of the political considerations they've had and uh, these these diplomatic boycotts and, and other hassles that, that, you know, other issues that they've had to deal with, they're just trying to get through it with, with as little incident as possible. Um, and so inevitably that affects the mood. For the summer, Bryce, you were here. It, it was a party. It was it was outdoors. It was the summer where people were watching in the streets. People had tickets to go to the games. It was so much fun. And I tried to get to as many different events as I could. I had a press pass which allowed me to do that. But my friends also had as many tickets as they could, as they could afford. Basically, it was China's again a cliche, but it was China's coming out party on the world stage. Uh, it was it was a very well. It was a spectacular event from the opening ceremony onwards. And uh, you know, Beijing residents had a lot of fun. This is this is not this is not going to be that. I don't think Beijing residents are going to be able to attend generally. There are a few kind of back channels that I'm still hoping to get to a few things. But if I do get to an event, and if anyone from the city goes to an event, here's here's how it will look. They have to have two tests within 96 hours of going. Two tests after coming out of the event, uh, and then monitor themselves for. Um, uh, for a week afterwards. I've heard that school kids actually have to, uh, there might be some school kids, they have to not just monitor themselves, but stay at home for a week afterwards. So kind of like a mini quarantine. Even if you're in a segregated part of a, of a venue where there are athletes and coaches who are in the bubble, there, there's not going to be zero risk. So basically, they're just worried about cross infection. It's obviously an airborne virus. So you can't have spectators and zero risk. So it's the balance. How do you put on a good show? but also how do you balance uh, all the pandemic restrictions. But do you think that there will be a greater amount of interest towards winter sports uh, coming out of the Olympics from China in general? There's two sides to this, really. Um, when China won the bid for, for the, the 2022 Games, that was in 2015. And basically the reason why they got it is, is they sold the future of winter sports. They said, 
we're going to have 300 million people involved in winter sports. Now, there's something about this number. You know, we hear 300 million uh, middle class consumers. We hear 300 million basketball players. Like They're just made up numbers, frankly. Um, it, it's meaningless. Like you don't have one in four people playing basketball in China. <laughs> like It's just just not actually true. The NBA says this and I've asked the NBA and they say, oh, but the CBA, the Chinese Basketball Association told us. Well, I was like, well, it doesn't make it true. <laughs> but they probably had an agency. I, like I can totally see an advertising company coming out with that number and I can explain to you as well how, how, how I would back up that number as well. Participation is a really broad word, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and let me tell you, the definition of 300 million, particularly when it comes to winter sports, has changed dramatic. Every week, it seems to have a different definition of exactly what a participant is. China announced last week they've achieved this goal. I think it, I think we're at 346 million. I mean, again, like, okay, you don't have 346 million people skating and skiing, but but I have witnessed a huge increase over those seven years since China was was awarded the Olympics. So, you know, ski resorts have popped up all over the country. Indoor ski resorts, you know, in the south where where it's not where it's not cold, they're, they're up as well. So we're seeing, you know, every time I go skiing there's so many people on the slopes a lot of them on the beginner slopes they're learning for the first time um again anecdotally so many people in beijing i know like their their kids are learning to, to to play ice hockey and learning to skate so so we are seeing a huge drive towards winter sports and developing that industry again it kind of annoys me because it, there aren't 300 million people skiing and <laughs> but but again how do we get kind of accurate numbers it, it's kind of impossible so i've given up Mark, do you have any bold predictions to make for the Winter Olympics? Or uh, to, to extend that a bit, are there any particular sports that we should be looking out for? There are a few sports where China has historically done well. Uh, that's uh, short track speed skating. Uh, and that's always a fun one to watch. If people are kind of wondering, oh, let, let me try out some Olympics, watch short track speed skating. Not, not just speed skating, it's got to be the short track because there's always crashes and disqualifications and there's always drama. Uh, and when it's the Olympics, there's always accusations of, you know, cheating and, and, and bias and, and it's fun. But China, China has had medal success there. Figure skating, they're also good. And then some of them, the kind of the, the, the younger hipper sports. So freestyle skiing and snowboarding. China is, uh, is, has some, some definite medal hopes there. I think the one area where they may have a, a breakthrough here is the sliding sports. Now, sliding is uh, uh, bobsleigh and luge and skeleton frightening you have to be you have to have guts to a lot of guts uh, you know you know you have to be incredibly brave to go down these 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 ice shoots at you know up to 90 miles an hour uh, an inch away from the ice at, at some point and it's dangerous if you crash you 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 know you're you're going to be in trouble the reason i think they'll do well is is twofold one there aren't that many professional sliding athletes globally you know we're talking we're talking hundreds just because there aren't too many of these bobsled tracks um, and so if China can, can get its, its effectively its, its uh, sponsored professional athletes and its Olympians in for a number of years, they can kind of quickly catch up to, to the global, the, the elite level. And we're already seeing a couple of, uh, of some of the Chinese sliders uh, performing at the top level. There was a guy um, in, the, in the skeleton who uh, won a World Cup event in Europe just a, just a couple of months ago. So that's kind of been really encouraging to see. The other reason I think they'll do well is because home track advantage has such a big, you know, it, it is really important in the sliding sports. 
there was a there was one of the foreign coaches uh, who's a foreign coach of the Chinese sliding team, and he was saying that the other athletes coming into China will probably have a chance for forty to forty five training runs on this track. And he said, my guys will have had ten to fourteen times the number of practice runs. Um, so it's basically imagine it's like playing your home golf course. You play it three times a week, and then you know, of course, if you're if you're one of the best golfers in the world, you're still going to play well. You're still going to be competitive. But knowing that course, knowing that track, is going to give you a huge advantage. Those are some of the sports where China may perhaps see some breakthroughs. That's really interesting. And what do you think about the state of sports sponsorships this year, given the COVID issues, and we've got, of course, Xinjiang cotton issues with some brands? Is sponsoring the Olympics is it a good value? In a word, no. Uh, this is this is an, an Olympics like no other when it comes to when it comes to sponsorships. The, the the 13 top level sponsors, a lot of the big brands that that you'd be aware of, they are very very low key. Less so in China, I would say, but but particularly overseas because the political temperature around these games. You know, we've had the the diplomatic boycotts from a lot of the Western countries. Congress in the U.S. has has been really really hard on these corporate. Uh, the corporate sponsors and sort of blaming them for for promotion of uh, of the Chinese government and so on and so as a result we've seen them basically try to take a really really low profile in the past you know you're spending millions and millions and millions of sponsorship dollars just to just to get the rights to be an Olympic sponsor and probably two to three times that in the activation so you know we 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 we're not seeing that at all. I, again, that's I would say less to do with COVID than uh, more to do with some of the the uh, political nature of these games. You know, we're in a more global world, so so what you do in one market now closely watched by uh, viewers overseas. So it's not that you can kind of have like a big you know happy campaign within China and no one overseas notices. Uh, those days are long gone, and I think that has really affected what what some of the big brands are doing. That said, you know, if you're a Chinese brand and you're you're focused on the Chinese market. I mean, if you're Anta or Lining or you know one of these one of these sports brands, you could do it. You could have some great campaigns where you're largely, uh, almost entirely marketing towards Chinese people. Um, there's no issues politically whatsoever. Um, you know, you can you can leverage even if you're not a, an official. Wouldn't exactly be like ambush marketing, but you can leverage these Olympic successes every time China has a um, you know, China has a, a medal success. You get on social media with a with a fun campaign and kind of leverage that positive momentum. You know, I, I think there's a lot of opportunities for those brands. But I think the the international uh, brands, the multinationals and the Olympic sponsors, they signed up for the Olympic partnerships long before they knew that Beijing was going to host these games, and long before they knew that that, that we're going to have the uh, or so many political issues as well. But um, it's 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 been tricky for them for sure. Yeah, I remember doing work for Adidas a couple of months ago, when 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 we were planning campaigns for Tokyo. It's not that it was very political, but it, we were just coming off of the cotton crisis, and it was really difficult to kind of plan a campaign. So, how do you, you know, how do you go in and and talk about advertising, or how do you run a campaign, attach itself to attach yourself to the volleyball team? And still be very authentic in what you have to say, and support China, and 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 still be of German origin. I think that was really that that was really challenging for them. But yeah, I mean, uh, Ali, to your point, like like when PR teams and marketing teams are sitting around going, "How do you plan a campaign?" Because there's so many. You know, you might get hammered from this side, you might get hammered from the other side. The answer basically is like, well, then you don't do anything, right? And so that's what that's 
people have become so cautious. There have been too many examples where brands have been burnt, uh, both in China and overseas, just over the last you know six to twelve months. You know, the 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 default I think more and more is becoming okay. Let's just lie low. Slightly on topic, but a little bit perhaps off. I think the campaign with um, the work that we did for Adidas ended up taking a, a, a sustainability turn. And uh, really? there was a lot of content around. The, so the content that we created for them was around sustainability. Um, they built a bunch of football grounds in, in faraway places and then talked about how distant sport and football have traveled um, and how they're, you know, how they're helping, um, you know, young people in, in remote areas of China um, pick up sport. So, um, so instead of, you know, being proactive about, oh, look at us, we're an amazing brand and showing off the celebrities or, you know, just adding fuel to the celebrity status of a lot of their, their athletes, they went off and did, you know, feel good things, which I think like, you know, for a brand at that time, just off the heels of, of the cotton crisis, I think makes a lot of sense. And they got a lot of positive, uh, press. I think increasingly, brands are this is something i've seen as well you know sustainability is is kind of it's about as neutral as you can get and it's sort of positive and you know it's hard to be attacked politically from kind of anywhere <laughs> so so it's it's sort of like the only area that's still safe um and we're seeing that a lot i think um i don't know if it's you know if post olympics that's going to change from from a sort of a china angle and china versus the west uh, but that's definitely the case at the moment Bryce, I have a question for you. I'm just looking at the question seven over here on our sheets. Who's Eileen Gu? <laughs> oh, Gu Eileen. Uh, she's the skier. She's born in California and she's half Chinese. Our mother's Chinese and she switched sides. She, she's now a Chinese citizen, uh, still living in California where she grew up. So I was just going to get your take on that, Mark. It's a very bold move. I mean, of course, I'm not suggesting anything against switching your citizenship or anything, but be able to do this raised a lot of questions. Uh, she argues that it's about being loyal to her ethnicity. Uh, I've heard other people say, no, it's all about getting sponsorships on the Chinese side. It's definitely a hot topic right now. And actually, it was the last, you know, on the on the the China Sports Insider podcast that we just did the, this week that we kind of talked about it at length. I think to try to sum up, I know that not everyone's going to agree with with this particular take. I kind of see, I don't see her as half Chinese, half American. I see her as, as fully Chinese and fully American. And she can only represent one country at an Olympics. So, so that makes sense. Yes, it makes more commercial sense for her to, to, to represent China. But I think that... It's not the only reason why, why she's made the switch. She has a big opportunity. She's 18, 19 years old. She's going to Stanford in the fall, you know, the, to, to answer your point about, you know, why is she still in the States? Well, she, you know, she's still kind of schooling there. She's friends with the people on the, on the U.S. ski team. Um, she's kind of obviously integrating into the, the Chinese team as well. She, she switched over in 2019. So it wasn't like just around the corner. Um, but I think that in terms of the opportunity, she is going to be the face of these these olympics or, or or at least one of the faces of these olympics because she's a, a gold medal favorite in at least one of her disciplines that that she's competing in the opportunity that she has and again this sounds a little bit sappy and and perhaps idealistic but she has a, an opportunity to to inspire millions and millions of 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 young children she's spoken in the past about when she was growing up skiing in in the us on the west coast there 
um, you know, she was the only girl on the ski team. She was the only one with with Asian heritage. And she said, you know, if there were more people who looked like her, she would have been more likely to get into the sport. You know, again, yes, she's going to get more money from the sponsorships. And, and when I was coming out of quarantine in Shanghai, I think I saw her face on three billboards uh, within the space of an hour, just walking around the streets. There was cola, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the bathroom brand. There was there was um, uh, luck in coffee. And I forget what the other one was. So, so she's been everywhere in terms of the sponsorship. And as a side note, I was kind of thinking, well, you know, maybe she should win, win some some gold medals first before she kind of capitalizes. But frankly, she's been on fire this season. She's unbeaten coming into the Olympics. Let me get back to it. You know, I, I do think it's a it, it feels genuine to me that she wants to kind of make a difference and inspire Chinese kids. She could do this uh, and have a lot more of an effect in China than she could in the US by kind of being the, the face of these games. There's too many other names for her to compete with and, and, and appeal to um, uh, in the US. So I think it's easy to be cynical and say she's only switching for the money. I try to kind of see it a different way and sort of think, well, look, she's, she's, she's engaging with, with who she is and her heritage. And, and, um, and hopefully this could be huge for the development of, of winter sports in China. There is one kind of issue with, with Eileen Gu that, that it came up over the last few weeks, like the, the Wall Street Journal had a story and, and, um, Red Bull, one of her sponsors had had on her web website saying, um, uh, you know, she renounced her American citizenship in 2019 and uh, the reporter kind of uh, contacted Red Bull to say, can you confirm this? And then this sentence, particular sentence, magically disappeared. And so there are going to be questions in the build up. And, and I'm sure she's going to get asked, like, does she still have a Chinese passport? Uh, sorry, does she still have a U.S. passport? Because as a lot of people know, China doesn't recognize dual nationality. But this is sort of a China issue you know, from, from the U.S. side. And different countries have different rules on this. Um, so it is definitely a sensitive it is a sensitive thing. We don't know. Uh, we don't know whether or not she does or doesn't have uh, a U.S. or a or Chinese papers, right? Uh, for me, it doesn't really matter, you know, as long as the federations and the IOC and and you know are okay with her being eligible, then then that should be the, the that should be the the, the main thing. But um, yeah, people are going to ask these questions, and unfortunately, there will be some nasty stuff online. Hi. Ali and I hope you enjoy Shanghai Zhang, the only marketing podcast coming to you from China. Now you can help support Shanghai Zhang by becoming a patron. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help support all the great marketing content that you hear on Shanghai Zhang. Simply go to our website, zhangstation.com. That's Z-H-A-N station.com and click on the Patron link at the bottom of the site. You can also go directly to patreon.com slash shanghaizan. That's p-a-t-r-o-e-n dot com slash shanghaizan. Thanks. We appreciate your support. Thanks, Mark. That's really interesting. Switching gears for a minute, how has social me media impacted the sports players and the brand sponsorships in China? Well, let me wind that out, first of all, from social media, just to kind of the media landscape. Um, I remember I was at a, a panel event, uh, I want to say around 2013, 2014. And Richard Young, who is a guy that, that I'm guessing one or both of you might know, who, who previously ran NFL in China out of Shanghai for, for a number of years, he was talking about, um, you know, CCTV, the, 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 the national broadcaster, was basically the only game in town. 
And he said, look, this is going to change. They're a dinosaur. They, it can't go on like this uh, for, forever. And he goes, this is, change is coming soon. And I remember sitting in the audience thinking that, you know, I'm kind of skeptical. It's China. Like it's, they can do what they want. And within a couple of years, uh, and this started with, with um, uh, the Tencent's online streaming sponsorship with the NBA, it completely revolutionized the, the Chinese sports industry in terms of broadcasting. Um, and then we saw the rise of all these streaming platforms, and, and some of them have kind of already gone through boom and bust, but we had Le Sports, uh, we've had PPTV, um, you know, Tencent, but all the other uh, online streaming platforms as well have, have competed for eyeballs. And I think to, to go back to the, to the initial question, like the, the younger demographic, they probably don't even have a TV at home. They're watching on their phones, they're consuming on their phones. Um, and so the streaming platform makes sense. And that kind of ties, goes hand in hand with social media. There's a huge amount of opportunity for both for, for teams and for leagues and for the individuals as well to connect with Chinese consumers, whether it's Weibo, whether it's, you know, there's, there's lots of different, um, more focused apps for, for different sports as well, like different platforms. Um, suit different different target audiences. Do you think there's going to be tokenization of some of the plays and uh, and some of the content that's created around the sports uh, for the first time? I mean, it would seem it would seem to be you know the Olympics would would seem to lend itself superbly to something like that in terms of like those key moments. You know, I, I'm going to give my uh, book a quick plug here, but the very opening chapter is when I was sitting four rows from the front at the the, the men's 100 meters final. I was actually sitting next to um, Sir Matthew Pinsent, who is a, um, a four-time Olympic gold medalist who was commentating for the BBC at the time. Uh, but he, he had uh, retired and he was sitting in the media seats and we were basically 85 metres down the 100-metre uh, uh, track and uh, four rows from the front. Usain Bolt broke his own world record and kind of at around 85 metres, he looks to the right, which is where we were, and it looked he literally felt like he was looking at us when he started to celebrate early and he put his arms, you know, and, and that that's a moment that, that is, it was like iconic, you know, these, these individual moments um, are created the Olympics because it's a four year cycle. They don't happen all the time. So I think even more than like a great goal in this league or in, or in this game, you know, the, the Olympic pinnacle, it means so much to the athletes because just to get there, just to time the cycle right and be free of injury and to be peaking at the right time is such a big deal. You know, people people say the, the Olympics are lo- losing their luster, but for me, you know, they're still in a lot of these sports. It's still the peak. Going back to sports sponsorships in general, where do you see the next big opportunity? I mean, we've seen a lot of mishaps in the China becoming a local football power. There's been issues with Daryl Morey and his tweets and, and the fall out of the, of the NBA. Where, where would be the big bets, you think, for professional sports sponsorships in China. We're going into a really tough period, to be honest, because the rest of the world is kind of moving on from COVID when it comes to sports. You know, leagues are back up and running. Arenas and stadiums are full. And yes, there's suspensions here and here and there, but basically they're trying to get back to to having full arenas as much as possible. And COVID is not seen as as uh, with the same amount of fear and terror as it is still here in China with with the COVID zero strategy, so very very different, uh, very different uh, approaches. But what that has meant is that basically there are no international sports events uh, in China right now. Of course, there's the Olympics, but I mean the management required for this pandemic just unbelievable. It's not something that can be easily repeated, and 
the other thing is, you know, players and athletes have been very clear, like they hate playing in, in empty arenas. Like it, it's the worst. They, they, they were just as relieved as fans to get the fans back in the stadiums uh, overseas. And so, you know, we're seeing the Chinese Super League play in a bubble. We're seeing the, the, the Chinese Basketball Association play in a bubble. It's just not the same. Uh, the foreign players have basically all deserted um, because it's it's just it's just so difficult. Uh, and so as a result, the attention on the league has gone down. The, the quality in the league, the leagues have gone down. So we're not going to see international sports events. We have Joe Kuan Yu, the, the first Chinese driver in F1, who will be in F1 this year. He won't be able to drive drive in his home Grand Prix because they've already scrapped it. So 2022 is definitely out. 2023, who knows at this point? It would be a pretty bold prediction to say the sports will be back to normal. So, you know, where does that leave us? Well, short to medium term in a tough spot, like I said, I guess the opportunities are, um, you know, there's still going to be people engaging online uh, with with sponsorships. and But it, it, it's not the same when you can't have that in-person interaction. It was so important for, for, for NBA teams you know, it wasn't about the preseason games, which were kind of glorified training sessions. It was about the sessions where they could interact with the fans and, and you know, and shake hands and have the appearances around that. Seeing seeing the athletes in the in the flesh, there's no there's no substitute for that. So this whole thing, you know, COVID and and, and the, the travel restrictions, I think is 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 going to really really hurt. Well, it's it, it's it's really hurting China's international sporting ambitions. Um, on the flip side, it's the the domestic tourism and and sports industry is 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 booming because people can't go anywhere else. So, for example, surfing in Hainan, you know, has has gone through crazy growth in the last couple of years because people aren't going overseas, so they're thinking, well, I want to do something fun. Let's let's go and learn to surf. You know, so that's good. Um, yeah, I don't want to be too sort of pessimistic about that, but it 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 does, you know, it's 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 an example of you know, sport is not top in the in the in the in the priority rankings here in China. You know, it, right now it's it's um, it's COVID that's kind of number one, and and political stability and, and everything that that means. And and on that kind of ranking list, sports way down. So, um, yeah, I, I guess short term it's not looking great, but hopefully we can move on from at some point, <laughs> move on from this lovely, lovely virus and. Uh, and get back to some sort of normality. But aren't we seeing people still engaging in content from from abroad? So they'll be watching, they'll be watching Juventus, or they'll be watching the Golden State Warriors. Uh, is there opportunities there? I mean, in the context of of sports that's happening in other markets. We are. Um, you know, when it comes to, for example, the NBA. You know, we've you, you mentioned the Daramori tweet. We've some, some sort of. I mean, the NBA has is still struggling to kind of recover from that, and and some of the teams are still banned. And 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 so, given that the the political temperature, we've seen issues with the Premier League. And and when players have something political to say, and China doesn't like it, right now tennis is basically banned from being streamed in China. So it, it's like it's kind of who's on the blacklist at any one time. And that is something that, that sponsors are going to be wary of, right? Why would you sponsor something with, with an eye on the Chinese market if one individual or one comment or one tweet or one post can basically get you shut down for a year or more, right? The, spo- the sponsor is going to be like, can I get my money back? So it, it's a risk. It, you know, it, it's a real pain. I wish it wasn't like that, but I, th- I think that is the reality. 
yeah, I, I, I think the opportunities are more sort of uh, within the Chinese market from Chinese brands because you don't have any of those risks. You're not going to have, you're not going to get shut down. You can really feed off the, the kind of the, the, the sense of Chinese nationalism and, and pride that, that people have in their, in their own, um, you know, sports and, and country and success here. Um, it's definitely going to be harder, I think, for, for the multinationals, at, at least over the next year or two. Now, we have a lot of conversations with uh, with some of our some of our clients on you know what sports means to um, uh, uh, young kids today, um, and I just wanted to pick your brain and see if you feel the same. Two thousand and eight was you know a watershed moment for China because um, it was them um, uh, you know hosting the rest of the world, um, and there's a lot of things that were happening also at the same time in China. Um, and, and if you compare twenty twenty two and you look at um, young children today. Um, uh, how how important is sports for them today? And 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 is that something that um, and is sports and athleticism uh, still you know is it is it part of the curriculum and, and 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 you know what's happening over there? Let me kind of let me kind of widen widen the the, the context for this. So like it. In the book, I kind of basically take a timeline from from 2008 all the way up to, to the present day and, and sort of go through all the, the highs and lows of China's sports industry development. I think the key moment was um, was a document that was released uh, towards the end of 2014, policy number 46, as it's kind of colloquially known. And this was to develop the Chinese sports industry. Uh, and the, the target was set to, to make it the number one sports industry in the world, um, you know, worth... Uh, 5 trillion yuan, about 800 billion US dollars. And a lot of things fed off of that. So the first wave that we saw was soccer. And we saw some huge growth in, in 2016, 2017, 2018. We've seen some really, uh, you know, some some leaner years more recently. The second wave was kind of winter sports. And that was feeding off, um, you know, uh, China being awarded the, uh, the Olympic Games and, and the results of that and the kind of the long seven-year build-up to, to these uh, Beijing Olympics. And then the third wave was kind of the rise of uh, mass participation sports. So people just generally getting involved in running and going to gyms and fitness and triathlons and, and cycling and, and so on. And that was more of an organic growth. And so that, I think, is more sustainable. That's been really, really good to see. Um, so that is probably... You know, whereas whereas the soccer was was not sustainable, and we've already kind of seeing seeing that play out to a certain extent. I think I'm most optimistic about that. The, the just generally everyday people being active uh, in a way that they weren't before. Um, this was kind of an organic, partly driven by government policy, but also a lot of a lot of people, a lot of middle class parents realizing the value of sports for their children. Now that said. You know, there are a couple of caveats, and I think one in particular is that that when sports gets in the way of, of schooling, it still loses that battle. When it goes head-to-head, it's, it's still seen as a distraction. And so you see in a lot of the youth sports that the teams are very, very good until the age of about 14, and then there's a dramatic drop-off. Ice hockey, for example, is one is one example of that. And the pressure on the pressure on, on, on children today to... to Get into a good university, you know, take that Gaokao where they're, where they're one of 10 million uh, students a year. I mean, the pressure to get into a, to, to a good school is still absolutely incredible. And so as much as parents kind of emotionally, 
kind of think, well, or sorry, as much as they intellectually understand, well, you know, sports is part of a good, well-rounded life. Um, the pressure when you see all the other parents, you know, in the after-school classes and the extra cramming and, and, the, and the prep that they're doing, you know, you don't want your kids to be to be left behind. And so there, there is still that there is still that pressure. You know, it, I don't think that's going to change overnight. It's something the government is aware of. We've seen reform, dramatic reforms to the education system over the, just in the last year. Um, but I think it starts, a lot of it starts with the university systems. There are some good universities in China. You know, there's a, there's a handful that it would be in the kind of the, the top 100 in the world. But there aren't enough, um, not for the population and not for the size, not for China's place in the world. You know, the, the middle class parents still, if they can, they still want to send their kids overseas for schooling. And it, and it takes takes a generation to, to really develop top universities. Um, this is kind of getting off the sports a little bit, but, but, you know, that kind of feeds into the competing, um, you know, competing uh, uh, draws just, you know, there's only so much time that a child has and, and, and priorities that, that parents have for their children. But I think that's um, sometimes sports will suffer as a result. Maybe uh, this uh, endorsement of Eileen Gu is, um, is you know, is sort of uh, tipping the hat and, and endorsing sports and getting young people to perhaps reconsider and, and consider sports as, you know, as a, as a, as a primary career. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, I, and the one thing I'd say, you know, Eileen Gu is going to Stanford, right? That resonates with some Chinese parents more than an Olympic gold medal. So, um, you know, but, but no, but I'm, but I'm serious. And we've seen this in the past. We've seen kind of examples of, of uh, kids who, who are very well developed in, uh, um, um, in, in a sport and they get a scholarship to a, to a top U.S. school. And so that then kind of becomes the pitch to the parents. Hey, get your kid good at this sport and then it will get them into a good university. So, you know, if you can't, if you, if you can't change the mentality, you can kind of work around it. I think we're going to do the A-B test. Um, if, you've, if you've heard the show before, Mark, there's a, there, towards the end, we go into the A-B test. A is, um, a is short for my name and B is short for Bryce. Um, so we're going to give you, we're going to throw two questions or two words at you. You have to pick one. Um, and there's no right answer. Uh, th- there might be a deeper meaning to the words, but we'll let, you know, our, our listeners figure that out. Some of the guests have snuck in a third answer, which is not, that is forbidden. You can't do that. Yeah, you get punished. Am I allowed to, uh, am I allowed to give uh, like a brief explanation when necessary? Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Beijing, Tokyo. You gotta be Beijing. Anta Adidas. I'm a little bit torn, but I think Adidas. Excellent. 10 years or 20? This is probably the trickiest one on the list. I'm going to say 20. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe because I'm, I'm, I'll probably end up being in China for 20 years rather Bingo. than 10. <laughs> oh, that's a, I was trying to figure out where that came from. No, I just looked at how long you've been here. And then I just wanted to see. Because, you know, we've always had conversations around leaving China. The first year comes becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight, eight becomes 16. And it just keeps on. Um, soccer or basketball? This is easy. Soccer for me. I, you know, I, I grew up in the UK, so got to be got to go with football. Excellent. Uh, snow or surf? Little bit torn, but hey, we got the Winter Olympics, so I'm going with snow. Excellent. NBA or CBA? Again, fairly tough. Um, one of my top moments in China at a sporting event was watching the uh, the the Sixers play actually in Shanghai. But I'm going to go with CBA. I did a I did a piece many years ago with uh, with with the Beijing Ducks uh, cheerleaders. <laughs> that was that was pretty fun. 
So I'm going with CBA. That would turn me to the Beijing Ducks cheerleaders <laughs> would definitely turn me to the CBA over the NBA. Some of the some of the sporting athletes or some of the sporting characters, uh, at least from from a decade ago. Um, but exciting for me, nonetheless. Yao Ming or Li Na? This is easy. Li Na for sure. She's, I think, my favorite Chinese athlete. Any reason? Just, oh, and she's so funny. Apart from anything else, her speech when she won the Australian Open uh, in, in 2014, I mean, she just had, she's not like completely fluent in English, but she was in it, speaking in English. She just had the, the, the whole crowd in stitches, talking about how her husband was like so lucky to have her, but kind of, you know, joking. I remember that. Uh, saying to, hey, to my, to my agent, hey, Max, uh, make me rich. You know, it, it, like it was, <laughs> it was genius. It was really good. She's everything that China needs as a sort of like a globally facing athlete. And unfortunately, we haven't had too many others. Liu Xiang or Li Ning? A little bit torn. I'm going with Li Ning. My very first sports blog in China was called the Li Ning Tower, which I thought was, uh, which I thought was super clever and amusing. No one really got the joke. So I kind of <laughs> had to explain it. And then I was like, okay, yeah, I'll change it. But, you know... Uh, for my own personal memories, I'm going with leaning there. Tattoos or ice cream? Ice cream for me. Fox Sports, CCTV Sports? Technically, I've worked for both over the years. Um, I'm going to go with I'm gonna go with Fox just because CCTV, again, I, I don't want to get a too long, too long an answer, but, you know, they have so much money and they could be so much better with their coverage than they have been over the years. They could be so much more... Um, you know, forward thinking and, and experimental. And, and it feels like we're just still watching coverage from 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and it doesn't need to be that way. So, you know, Fox by default. Kung Fu Panda or the skiing panda? Again, another tough one. I love these questions, by the way, guys. Um, uh, the I kind of want to go skiing panda because it's the Olympics. But, you know, Kung Fu Panda, my kids love that movie. I love that movie. I'm going with Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Hey, Mark, thanks for taking the time to do this today. It was really fascinating. And I definitely look forward to watching the Olympics after, after the show. So congratulations on the book. Yeah, thank you. No, I appreciate you guys getting me on. It's been, uh, it's been fun to chat. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on today's episode. And thanks for Mark to uh, give us all this great insight. We'll be posting the links to his book in the show notes of this episode. And please, by all means, check it out. And you can also go to our website for more information and more podcasts of the similar Chinese marketing genre on johnstation.com. That's Z-H-A-N station.com. Join us next week for another exciting show. And to all our listeners, until then, have a great day. Bye.